Hello and welcome back to Delighted Motherhood, a podcast devoted to delighting ourselves in the Lord and enjoying our kids to the glory of God. I'm your host, Kira Nelson. In my motherhood journey and in my Christian life in general, I have had some pretty incredible relationships with some amazing Christian women. It's hard for me to express how essential and life-giving and transformative these relationships have been to me. They've been the means by which God has molded me and strengthened me and blessed me and delighted my heart. Through these women, I've learned so much. I've learned about how to prioritize my quiet time, about how to handle a crazy blowout, about things I should pack in my car for a trip to a beach, about what to do when I'm really not feeling like being intimate with my husband. I've learned so much from these relationships that have been essential to my mothering. And further, I've been loved in these relationships. I've had the chance to love other Christians and to be loved by other Christians. And in fact, God says this kind of love, Christians loving one another in this tender, intimate way, is the way by which we are known as the family of God, that we have love for one another. But even more than that, in a very real sense, we express our love for God through the way that we treat others. Consider Matthew 25, 40. The king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Scott Hubbard, he's an editor for Desiring God, and he's a pastor at a church in Minneapolis, All People's Church. He writes that true holiness may begin between God and the soul, but it finds its full expression in community with other people, other wonderful, glorious, frustrating, and sometimes offensive people. And that's really what I want us to think today is about kind of those last two words, the frustrating and the offensive, because the reality is, is that Christians, other Christians that we're going to be in relationships with are frustrating and they are offensive. They're sinful, hurtful, rude, inconsiderate, self-righteous, slothful, and mean. And the reality is that each of those labels actually describes me. And I can pinpoint times that I have done all of those things to other friends who I love very much. If you were friends with me for any length of time, it is extremely likely that you will experience some of my sin. And honestly, if I know you very well at all, if we're in the kind of relationship where we can benefit one another, where we can share those best practices and encourage each other towards what is good, it is very likely that you're going to sin against me also. Sometimes we're going to have big disagreements about big, important things. And the disagreements themselves may not actually be sinful. They may be about things that don't have a definite biblical right answer. But our frustrations and our bitterness over these things can drive us apart to the point that we no longer want to work together, that we are no longer in agreement, and most significantly, we are no longer loving one another. This can happen for a million different reasons. There can be all kinds of different things that set us on edge. Maybe you do something a little bit annoying, it's not that annoying, but it's a little annoying, and then 
I am completely on edge for a completely separate reason, but I exploded you over that thing. And you rightly, in one sense, are deeply offended. Now we have this wedge between us. Or maybe one of our kids hits another one of our kids and we don't agree about the way that we handled the situation, each of us individually. Maybe it's the way that we're structuring something. We don't like that the way one person is structuring something or another. There are all kinds of different reasons that we could have conflict, that we could have frustration against one another. Maybe you said you were going to be able to meet me for something I thought was important, but closer to the event, family situations were too much and you weren't able to meet me. But I feel like I can't rely on you and I can't trust you to come alongside me in something that's important. And in my experience, honestly, just as a person who's a Christian has had a lot of friendships, when these things come to a head, they don't typically magically just evaporate with a good conversation. Honestly, there's usually quite a bit of angst and it can be very distracting and it can be really distracting in my motherhood. I can find myself sitting with my child and then thinking about this festering problem that I have with another sister in Christ. One of my seminary professors, Paul Aiken, um, who he's right now, he's the provost and senior vice president, uh, or one of the senior vice presidents at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. But previously, he served in a sending role uh, for the International Mission Board. And in his experience, get this, in his experience, one of the biggest factors to people leaving the mission field in the first few years wasn't culture shock or missing their families. It was actually frustrations and disagreements on their team. Relationships are really hard and conflict can bring ministry partnerships to a halt. So to begin to process how to think about these things well, these deeply disruptive conflicts, we are going to be spending some time considering the conflict of two ancient women. So these are ancient ladies. They are very long dead. And honestly, we don't know a whole lot about them. Their names are Yodia and Synecdoche. They had a very public conflict, and they were very publicly rebuked by the Apostle Paul in the letter to the Philippian church. In the view of some scholars, their conflict could have been one of the primary issues that Paul writes to address in this key epistle, which has so shaped the way that we think about Christian living. So truthfully, I'm glad that the Lord permitted them to have this hard, yucky conflict, because through it, and because of the way that it was publicly dressed, I can learn how to handle the conflicts that I'm going to face in my Christian relationships. So let's dive into this embarrassing public conflict in Philippians and see what we can learn from it and how it can apply to our call to love one another as sisters in Christ. All right, friends. Well, let's get into these mommy wars in Philippi. Now, um, I do not know if these women were mothers or if their conflict had anything to do with motherhood. Um, but just for the sake of the title, that's what we're calling it. We're going to be looking at um, kind of the whole of Philippians, but specifically zoning in on where these two women are addressed, which is in Philippians 4, 2 through 9. And I'm going to read that for you so you can continue doing your dishes or folding your laundry or doing your run or whatever it is that you're doing. But before that, let me pray for us, and then I'll read the passage, and we'll see how Paul urges these women to handle their conflicts. 
Dear Lord, I thank you so much for your word. Lord, thank you for your mercy towards me, a sinner. Lord, I pray that you would help me and you would help anyone who is listening to agree in the Lord with our sisters in Christ. Lord, help our reasonableness be evident to all and to remember that you are at hand. And Lord, I pray that in everything we would cast our anxieties upon you, knowing that you care for us. It's in the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Okay, so I'm going to read for us um, Philippians 4, 2 through 9, okay? So it says, I entreat Eodia and I entreat Synecdoche to agree in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you also, true companion, to help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. This is the word of the Lord. And as one of my former pastors, Brian Davis would say, that is the best part of the message. So you can turn off the podcast right now and just think about Philippians 4, 2 through 9. So a little bit of kind of how this passage is structured. So we see first that there's an exhortation and an application of gospel unity in these first couple verses where Paul is entreating these two women to agree. And then he's asking for his beloved um, servant to mediate between them. So many scholars, and I'm I'm not a scholar clearly, but I agree with these scholars. Many scholars think that uh, Philippians 4 2 is actually the climax of the letter of Philippians. And it's one of the primary reasons for which Paul was writing to the people in Philippi. Now, not everyone agrees on that. So you can make your own conclusion when you go back and read through Philippians yourself. But I think even if it's not um, a primary reason for the writing of the letter of Philippians, it is a very important point that Paul is addressing. And he's structuring a lot of this of his letter to address this situation. Paul has been explaining the gospel in the previous three chapters of Philippians, and now he's going to apply the gospel to their need for reconciliation and unity. And then in verses four through nine, what we're going to see is the further application of what this gospel unity is going to look like. Rejoicing always, being gentle with everyone, being anxious for nothing, praying in everything and thinking about what is good and then practicing these things. And I think what we see from kind of looking at this structure is we see that joyful Christian unity 
the kind that Paul is entreating these two women to, is grounded in submission to Christ, in prayer, and in thanksgiving. So I want to give you just a little bit of literary context also for this passage. So let's think about um, Eodia and Synecdoche. What do we know about them? Well, very little is known about them, um, but we do know that they are Christians, right? Their names are written in the book of life. So they have a citizenship that is in heaven. And we know that these are two women who both love Paul and who Paul loves, and he's deeply concerned about them, and they're deeply concerned about him. So they both share in common similar loves and similar aims. We don't get a whole lot of background on each either of these women or on their conflict. Paul doesn't say, these two ladies who do such and such and who are disagreeing about such and such. He just goes right in on it. He just says, Iodia and Synecdoche. So in this small church in Philippi, these two women were likely very well-known, as was their conflict. So this is a disagreement about which the whole congregation was keyed in on. But I do love her, I just do love resonating with, although he is publicly calling them out, Paul again makes a real point to do it with a way of tenderness and of reminding them who they are in Christ Jesus. So this is going to be a church which is full of all first-generation Christians, right? Because the gospel is just beginning to go out to the ends of the earth. These are people living in a city that would have been hostile to their minority beliefs. As a tiny minority, their unity and their cooperation would have been critical to their survival. This is going to be a very diverse body of people. In Acts 16, we see that the church in Philippi is comprised of Lydia, who's a seller of purple cloth, of a demon-possessed girl or a formerly demon-possessed girl, and a jailer. And so some of these fric- some of these differences across you know, what they do for a living, across their genders, across um, their uh, backgrounds, et cetera, these probably did cause some friction and could have caused places where there was a lot of disagreement. Um, But they are also people that's going to face a lot of suffering. And so I think Paul is rightly, rightly calling them to think about their unity in Christ as being so much more important than the very real conflict that they're facing. So they're going to be facing suffering, and Paul himself has faced much suffering. He's been beaten and imprisoned, falsely accused, shipwrecked, bitten by a snake, forsaken by his friends, and yet he's still writing them this letter from prison with this beautiful, unshakable hope and joy. If you get a chance later, just turn on the Bible app, um, listen to the book of Philippians, and listen for the number of times that Paul says to rejoice in the Lord, to have hope in the Lord, and the joy that he has in the Lord. Although Paul, also a person who has had conflict with ministry partners, think about Barnabas, the son of encouragement. Paul had a huge rift with Barnabas, the son of encouragement, over Mark, who's going to go on to write the Gospel of Mark, who is later going to be considered very dear and tender to Paul. But Paul also has faced relational conflict. But he's writing to them and he's saying, have joy and have hope. So he goes through the book of Philippians. He says all kinds of beautiful, wonderful things, calling them to have unity, encouraging them through remembering who Christ Jesus was. In Philippians 2, we read that 
Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. And so Paul says to this whole church, so this church would have been assembled together, and then this letter would have been read out loud to them. He says to this whole church, consider others more significant than yourself. So he's going through all of these things. And then he gets to these two women, Iodia and Synecdoche. And can you just imagine if you are these two ladies? So think about like a conflict that you've had with another woman. Um, And I can think of so many, Um, but I think about like a conflict that I have with another woman that is deeply painful and deeply frustrating. And I'm angry at her. And I think she is sinful and wrong. And I am sure that the Lord is on my side. And I just cannot imagine standing at, in my with the membership of my church or sitting at like a membership meeting and our pastor Garrett standing up front and saying, Kira and so-and-so, like, can you imagine the tension of that? Especially after perhaps there had been a longer address on the need for unity, on the need for considering others more important than yourself. But Paul gets right into it and he he tells them, he tells them, to agree in the Lord. So he's calling these women to seek to reconcile with one another. But then he goes on to explain how they are going to do that. So let's look again at the scripture. I'm going to read this one more time. So it says in verse two, I entreat Eodia and I entreat Synecdoche to agree in the Lord. Okay, so that's what he's telling them to do. So think about your conflict. Think about my conflicts. I have like gazillions. Um, And then in verse three, it says, yes. And I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So in this section, in our conflicts, I think we see a couple of things that are helpful. Sometimes when we have a conflict that is so painful and we are so emotional in it, it can be hard for me to rationally talk. (laughs) I just don't do that very well. And Paul here is, is urging for there to be a mediator. He's saying, true companion, help these women. So I think sometimes in conflicts, it can be really wise for us to seek outside counsel, to ask another woman to step in and to consider the thing that we are in conflict over. And then on the other side, I think I would just encourage us to be thinking about how we can be peacemakers, that if there's a conflict that we're not in the thick of, but we know is deeply painful to another few sisters, how can we be stepping in in a loving way, not in a condemning way, but in a loving way to say, you let, let me help you to, to agree in the Lord. Help me help you to, to labor together again, side by side for the gospel. And then in verse four, it says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And this is, I think, where the most encouraging section of this passage is for me, is that the Lord is saying to me, Kira, 
in the conflicts that you have with other Christians. Rejoice in the Lord. So don't allow yourself to become so fixated on how sinful they were or how much they hurt you. Those are true things that need some reconciliation and sometimes need outside mediation, as we saw in verse 3. But primarily, what you are called to do is to rejoice in the Lord. And look, look who's writing this. It's Paul who's in prison, who has had all kinds of suffering done to him. He's saying rejoice in the Lord and you too can rejoice in the Lord. So in your painful relational conflicts that make you feel yucky and make you feel like you can't go to that meeting because that other girl is going to be there, rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say rejoice. How can we rejoice in the Lord? By considering that our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. I love thinking about the gospel in this passage. Both of these women have their names written in the book of life, right? The book of life is referenced in Revelation 3.5 in the letter to the church at Sardis and in Revelation 20.15 at the judgment before the great white throne. And the concept is that the people whose names are written there are those who are saved. Those are people who have the guarantee of the Holy Spirit and the guarantee that they're going to be resurrected to new bodies and that they're going to reign with the Lord Jesus Christ in the new kingdom that he is going to create. So these two women both have their names written in the Lamb's book of life, right? Like neither of them are going to hell. That's a reason for rejoicing. And although they are certainly sinning, unlike those who do not know the Lord, they are not going to pay for their sins. Christ paid for their sins on the cross. So the theme about um, a, a book of life or those being written in the book of life, it's the specific reference is only used in Revelation, in the book of Revelation. But the concept is actually a rich theme throughout scripture. In Exodus 32, after the people worship the golden calf, it's talked about. In Psalms uh, 69, David describes his enemies not being written in the book. In Daniel 12, it's referencing the end of all times where people are going to be judged. So what we see here is that these two women and you and me, if we are in Christ, our names are in the book of Christ and we are not going to pay for our transgressions. Unlike those who are referenced in the Old Testament, we are not going to pay for our transgressions because Jesus Christ himself paid for them. We have peace with him. And it is this very peace that is then referenced in the next section. It is this very peace which will guard my heart and will guard your heart in Christ Jesus. As we cast our anxieties over these painful interpersonal conflicts upon the Lord, what the Philippians had learned, what they had heard, what they had received from Paul was the good news of salvation. Reconciliation between God and man through Jesus Christ, laying aside his own interests and trusting in the Father fully and setting his mind on things that are above. So we too can practice these things by reconciling with our fellow Christians. This is truly the gospel lived out. And the peace of God, peace which is possible because of the cross, will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let our reasonableness be known to all. So let's not be unreasonable. Let's not say she was the biggest jerk on the planet. Let's not, like I tend to do, my husband will be like, you're conflating things. You're making things bigger in your brain than they, than they actually are. 
Let's not do that. Let's let our reasonableness be known to all because we remember the Lord is at hand. He's at hand for our salvation. He has saved us. He's also present. He knows what she actually said and what I'm making her say in my brain. The Lord is the one who is at hand. And through Christ, he has broken down the dividing wall. And we can cast our anxieties and our cares upon him because he has brought peace between both man and God and man and his neighbor. So do not be anxious about anything. Once you have confessed your sin to the sister, if she is still at enmity with you, do not be anxious about anything. Christ has paid for your sin and my sin in full. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, with thanksgiving for the fact that you are not going to pay for your sin and I am not going to pay for my sin if we are in Christ Jesus. Let our requests be made known to God. Let our requests, our desire for gospel reconciliation be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This does not mean that every relationship is going to be beautiful and glowing and magical. In fact, again, as I already alluded to, Paul had a huge conflict, which caused a division with Barnabas. So there are going to be some partnerships that split and are painful. But when we cast these relational anxieties on the Lord, when we pursue reasonableness and we cast them upon the Lord, considering others more significant than ourselves, the peace of God will guard our hearts and it will guard our minds in Christ Jesus. And then what am I to do when I'm feeling anxious and frustrated and, and this is just a hard situation? I'm to pray and then I'm to set my mind on what is true. What is true about this, sister? What is honorable? What is just? What is pure? What is lovely? What is commendable? What is excellent? What is worthy of praise about this sister? And then think about these things. And what you have learned, what you have received, what you have heard and seen in me, practice these things and the peace of God will be with you. Disunity will so quickly dissolve gospel partnerships. And gospel reconciliation is gospel application. My friends, I this is this is like so encouraging to my heart because these kinds of things can just get into your soul and feel so hard. And I think that sometimes I just forget the word of God. I forget that the word of God is sufficient to, to answer these questions that I have. The word of God. I love the Bible so much, but it speaks to all of these questions. It speaks to all of these things that I'm facing, whether it's these kind of relational conflicts with another woman, whether it's um, my own bitterness and anxiety over other things, or it's it's how do I deal with a a wayward toddler? The, the, The word of God is sufficient for all of it. And I think that when we, the more that we seep ourselves in it and see it as applicable to the actual situations we are in, the more that we will be blessed by it. The Lord is so gracious to give us his word. And honestly, I am so thankful that he chose to humble these two women. 
Like I would have died in my shoes if I was either of these two ladies. Can you imagine? And these are godly women. These are women who have labored side by side for the gospel. These are ladies who are very invested in their church. But the Lord chose to humble them, to publicly call out their sin. And because of that, what do I now have? I have a picture of what gospel reconciliation looks like. And I have a roadmap for what to do when I have a conflict with another woman. It's not just one line. It's two paragraphs full of step by step what I'm supposed to do. Let my reasonableness be known to all. Cast it upon the Lord with thanksgiving. And then focus on the things that are true, the things that are beautiful, the things that are good. But in all things... We remember to fix our eyes on Jesus because the key of all of this is that none of this is possible in my own strength. Personal willpower, my ability, is a pitiful substitute for God's power, almighty ability. The law of the soul says that you become like what you watch. So fix your eyes on Jesus and all the things that point to him and the effect will be greater Christ-likeness. That was from Jason C. Meyer. So my friends, I'm, I feel for you. I really understand. I so, so understand the pain of, of these sorts of relationships when they are hard and difficult and there seems to be no good reconciliation. But let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Let us fix our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith. Let me pray for us. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it is true and it is life-giving. Lord, thank you that it is like a double-edged sword and that it pierces to our deepest innermost souls. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be at peace. Let our reasonableness be known to all. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to fix our minds on the things that are pure and excellent and good. It's in the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Well, until next time, sisters, may we delight ourselves in the Lord as we delight in the calling that He is giving us. Mm-hmm.